There's a lot going on in here this week, so uh, a few of the uh, details of setting things back up didn't get put in place, and that is understandable. On Thursday, Netzer hosted uh, a number of pastors from all around the area here uh, because uh, Pastor Jim Simbola from Brooklyn Tabernacle was down here uh, with us, sharing with us, which was uh, a real gift. And then on uh, yesterday, the Cub Scouts had their blue and gold banquet in here and Franklin Institute set up shop in here with the, uh, with the kids and put on all sorts of demonstrations and it was a lot of fun. So this room has been transformed a lot throughout the week. Um, you know, there's a lot going on and that's just at the, the second half of the week. There's other things at the beginning of the week. So um, anyway, yeah, we are uh, really glad to be here with you this morning and uh, excited about continuing on this Lenten journey with you. Um, as you can see, our, our uh, phrase that we'll be focusing on today is, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? So um, I'm going to put that up. And our text for today is from Mark chapter 17. And it's just two verses today. So you can stand with me, please, in honor of God's word. Verse 33 and 34. At the sixth hour, darkness came over the whole land until the ninth hour. And at the ninth hour, Jesus cried out in a loud voice. Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani, which means, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? You can have a seat and join me in prayer. God, uh, there's been a great deal of pain in this world and a great deal of pain in our own lives. There have been moments when we have failed open, and there have been moments when we've been betrayed. And in the, in the depths of our being, we felt pain, we felt separation, but we've never felt fully what you've felt. And I believe that it's important for us today to feel that with you, to comprehend that a little bit, to at least comprehend it, maybe not to completely feel it, but to... Com- but to uh, but to comprehend what it is that you felt. And I ask God that you would give us clarity today. There's a reason why this is written in the scripture. There's a reason why this phrase is spoken from the cross. And I ask that today you give us more clarity on why that is, God. And we ask for your Holy Spirit to just come and move in our hearts, that you would move through my words, God, and that you would move uh, in each of our hearts. And uh, we recognize that the only reason that the word comes to us is completely by your grace. God. And so we thank you for your grace and for your mercy. In the name of Jesus. Amen. So I believe that the horror of the cross, the horror of Christ's sufferings, really uh, find their culmination in this phrase. This isn't the fulfillment yet. This statement isn't the fulfillment of everything. You know, we'll still hear it is finished. We'll still hear 
into your hands I commit my spirit. But I believe that when it comes to the actual pain of Christ, that this is the culminating moment. This is the climax of the pain. And, uh, and the setting actually describes that for us. You know that in a, in a play or in any story that the environment, the setting, really kind of expresses to us what we're supposed to be feeling and what's happening. And, uh, you know, on Wednesday, uh, the wind was crazy on Wednesday. I don't know if you experienced that this past Wednesday. It was a very, very windy day. We were supposed to get a huge snowstorm. Um, but, I, oh, yeah, by the way, we had that uh, Jim Simbola event here on Thursday, and we were supposed to have this snowstorm, you know. And we, last time he was supposed to come in was in November, and Hurricane Sandy hit. And, uh, and so he couldn't come down. They didn't have any power up there in New York and everything. So this time the snowstorm was coming, and on, Wednesday, or on Tuesday night we had a board meeting. And uh, at the board meeting, a number of you prayed a- against that snowstorm. Um, and uh, I, I, I believe Don, I believe Byron, I, there's no, if I look around, a number of you were praying against that snowstorm, Harry. And I think you all owe the meteorologists an apology because they might be losing their jobs over that one. Yeah. Um, but anyway, the, uh, on, on Wednesday, uh, the wind was, it was crazy wind. And uh, as we were up, in, in, if you're in this, in this neighborhood, Wednesday is also trash day. And so anytime there's a really windy day on Wednesday, it's a really bad thing because trash is everywhere, especially the recycling bins. They don't last long. They're gone. And, and uh, some neighbors kind of catch all of it right in their yard. But uh, I was out, uh, came home on Wednesday, and I was kind of picking up trash and pulling in cans and all of that. And my neighbor came out, and she was looking around, and it was really gloomy and dark and big wind going all over, and there was birds everywhere for some reason, and there's trash flying all over, and she just looks over at me, and she said, it's so Alfred Hitchcock out here, you know, and uh, I was like, yeah, it really kind of is, and it was funny how, like, the ambiance spoke of something, you know, that's like, yeah, just saying the word Hitchcock means a certain level of emotions and a certain level of, like, it sets the the stage for something. And when we hear that from the sixth hour to the ninth hour of the day, it was utter darkness, that should really speak to us. It should reveal something. And you see, what was going on in this moment is this, this isn't just God setting the stage. This is that the physical world is revealing a spiritual reality. The spiritual reality of what was happening in that moment started to manifest in the physical. Have you ever experienced that? Some of us have experienced that where you've gone to a place and it's just you know that stuff isn't okay spiritually. And you don't know exactly why you know it. Some of it might have to do with, you know, kind of the physical environment. Like my neighbor said, it it feels kind of weird, but... But you just start to sense stuff. Well, the darkness was so thick, the sin was so heavy that was being centralized on Christ in this moment as the sin of the world is being placed on Jesus and and as the Pharisees, the religious leaders, everyone else with all the control and all the evil and all that stuff that's taking place and with all the demonic activity that's taking place around Christ, the skies just turned completely dark from noon until 3 o'clock 
the sixth hour until the ninth hour, it turns completely dark. Right in the middle of the day, it's just darkness. And, of course, this reveals, not only is that a revealing of what's going on spiritually, just imagine what this does with Christ, who's suffering in, in ways that we can't imagine. And the length of this, I mean, when you think about it, it's to, to experience excruciating pain. You know, when I dislocate, have dislocated my shoulder a few times or, or blown out my knee or whatever, the, the amount of pain that you experience on the, on the front end of that is really, really bad. But to be in that sort of scenario for hours and hours on end is unfathomable. You know, and, and here he is for hours in this pain. And then for three hours, it's utter darkness. And what does that mean? I mean, it means it, loneliness, abandonment, rejection. No one else but me in this thing, you know. And, uh, and so here he is. And what's more is, is the darkness. In the darkness, no one knows what's really going on, right? I mean, once things are dark, it's left up to your imagination, and imaginations in the dark usually don't lead to good things. And so here we are in, in a very, very, very ugly situation. And out of that darkness comes this cry. And here's the cry, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Jesus, only hours before, was in a garden sweating blood because of the tension of what he knew he would go through. And he says, Father, if possible, let this cup pass from me. But nevertheless, not my will, but thine be done. And now here, he cries out to his father. And when he cries out to his father, he no longer calls him father in this moment. He says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why is it that Jesus says this? I mean... Clearly, there is uh, this sense of loneliness that the stage sets and all of that, but we also know that this is a quotation, um, and any of us who have been around the faith for a while know that this is a quotation of Psalm 22. And what I'd like to do here for a minute is read you just a couple, a couple verses from Psalm 22. Uh, Psalm 22 is one of the most detailed messianic prophecies in the entire Old Testament. It's probably in the top two most detailed messianic prophecies in the Old Testament. Uh, that and Isaiah 53, the suffering servant. He had no beauty or majesty by which we were attracted to him. He bore our, our sufferings and the iniquity of us all was laid on him. That's Isaiah 53. This is Psalm 22, the only one that rivals it or surpasses it in the details of messianic prophecy. You know, the, prof the messianic prophecy means prophecy about the Messiah. Um, and so this is, uh, I, I want you to know this is a thousand years before Jesus lived and died. A thousand years before he lives and dies. This is the detail by which uh, th this prophecy takes place. In Psalm 22, in the first verse, it says this. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? There's the quote, right? My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from saving me, so far from the words of my groaning? Of course, the irony here, as Christ is saving the world, this phrase is, why are you so far from saving me? And he's the one who's doing the saving. Um, in verse 6, if you look down in verse 6, it says, But I am a worm and not a man, scorned by men and despised by the people. All who see me mock me. They hurl insults, shaking their heads. He trusts in the Lord. Let the Lord rescue him. 
Let him deliver him since he delights in him. What does that remind us of? It's the, the Pharisees saying, you said you could, you could destroy the temple and raise it in three days. Come off the cross. And who else mocks him? Yeah, the one thief, the, the, the one criminal on the cross. He says, you know, if you're the Messiah, we'll get off this cross and, and come off. And, and we're told that passerbys mock him and people were spitting on him and all of that. Verse 14. I am poured out like water and all my bones are out of joint. We know from crucifixion that's a, a, a reality. That uh, while his bones weren't broken, the coming out of joint is a reality. My heart has turned to wax. It has melted away within me. We know uh, what happens to his heart. By the time they pierce his side, the blood is already there. My strength is dried up like a potsherd, and my tongue sticks to the roof of my mouth. You lay me in the dust of death. Next week, the next phrase that we'll be talking about is, I thirst. Okay, and here it is that my tongue sticks to the roof of my mouth. Verse 16, dogs have surrounded me. A band of evil men have encircled me. They've pierced my hands and my feet. I don't think we need any description around the clarity there. Uh, Verse 17, I can count all my bones. People stare and gloat over me. They divide my garments among them and cast lots for my clothing. How detailed can you get? You know, the centurions sitting here casting lots for his garments. This is a thousand years beforehand. Imagine if you ran across a document that was written a thousand years ago that explained your day today in great detail, in all the details of it. That'd be scary. Yeah, it would be scary. Mind-boggling. Now, here's the thing, of course, is that Everyone around is well-versed in the scriptures, you know. They understood the scriptures the way uh, people these, these days and days quote songs or movies or whatever, you know. The, pe- people were scripture critics, they studied scripture. That was kind of a common understanding. And so when Jesus cries out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? This is like a, is the catchphrase. This is the beginning of the, of the psalm. And, of course, they don't actually understand him because they actually think he's crying out to who? Elijah, if we keep reading, they say, oh, he's crying out to Elijah. Let's see what he says. So they don't actually hear him. But what he's speaking in this moment is the beginning of the psalm. And this is kind of the psalms weren't numbered at that point. They were known by phrases. And he speaks out this phrase. Now, what is it that he's doing? Why would Jesus be quoting this psalm right now? Why is he not calling out to his father just the way he always talks to his father? Why, instead of saying, Dad, Abba, Daddy, why aren't you here? Why aren't you backing me up? But instead, he decides to quote this psalm. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Well, this is part of why, I believe, is because the other passage that is incredibly detailed in its messianic prophecy is in Isaiah 53. And in verse 12 of Isaiah 53, in the second half of it, it says this, because he poured out his life unto death and was numbered with the transgressors, because he bore the sin of many and made intercession for the transgressors. See, in this moment, Jesus is carrying every ounce of our sin. All of our sin, all of our rejection, everything is being put, placed on Christ. Hence, all of the darkness, right? And, and so here he is, in this moment, carrying all of our darkness. And is Jesus guilty of sin? He personally is not guilty of sin, and yet every ounce of our sin is being put on him. 
This Psalm 22 is the psalm of the righteous sufferer. That's what this psalm is. Of David crying out, they're standing around gloating over me. I've been trying to serve you and here they are oppressing me and all of this. And what David is expressing a thousand years before is he is expressing what it's like when he's trying to walk with God and yet all the sin of humanity just piles itself up on top of him. And what does it feel like to him that he's been abandoned? That God is not here with him. And Jesus, the language of Christ, is the language of the scriptures. Who wrote that psalm a thousand years before? David did, but under the inspiration of the Spirit. Jesus, of course. And so a thousand years ago, Jesus was actually speaking these words through the mouth of David. And now Jesus speaks them again through the cross. And as he expresses these words, what it is that he's expressing is he's expressing not just his own pain and his own rejection, but he's expressing the pain of humanity. Because we're told that he's interceding on our behalf, that when all of our sin is put on him, when he carries all of our burden, then he makes intercession for us. You remember our first phrase was, Father, forgive them. And we said, what is that phrase? Who's it addressed to? Father, forgive them. Who's it addressed to? The Father. So therefore, it's what? It's prayer. And here we are again, and we see in the fourth phrase, again, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? What is this? It's prayer. And so what Jesus is doing is offering intercession. As he hangs there and as he's crying out from the cross, this is Jesus communicating from the depths of humanity. He is offering prayer. Now here's a level of irony for us. Is that th anybody know what the ninth hour of the day is for Jews? It's the hour of prayer. It's the hour of prayer. 3 p.m. is the hour of prayer uh, for the Jews. And so here Jesus is on the ninth hour. There's a reason why it's expressed that this is the ninth hour, the hour of prayer. And so here he is on the hour of prayer with all the sins of humanity placed on him. And he reaches back and grabs a hold of his words from a thousand years ago that are written through the mouth of David, the righteous sufferer. And he expresses them again as he bears our sin and offers intercession on our behalf. It's a powerful powerful moment of what it is that is going on with Jesus. However, Jesus is not just quoting a psalm, and Jesus is not just offering a prayer. Jesus is fully and completely experiencing the loneliness, the rejection of our sin. We can't comprehend. I, I don't know how we could possibly comprehend, but all of, of those moments where we have rejected where we have been rejected and all of those moments where we have, have messed up our lives, you know, uh, all of those moments are placed on him in that moment. And, and every time that we have felt the shunning of someone else, every time that we have felt the pain of being rejected by another person, every time that we have sensed that failure internally where we've messed up, all of that is placed on Jesus and he's experiencing this fully in the moment. This is called... Uh, penal substitution or sacrificial atonement. These, those are the theological terms of Jesus taking our place. Now, we're, we're very well aware of that theological idea of Jesus takes our place on the cross. But here's the thing, is that for many of us, it can be really difficult at times when we get to this time of the year, when we have heard the message of the gospel over 
and over again, when we've heard about Christ on the cross, what can be difficult for us is to take the reality of what Jesus was experiencing and to really fully appreciate it and to see the power of that work itself out in our lives. I mean, how many of us can honestly say that every time we hear the gospel message, we just find ourselves being broken with complete gratefulness and that we ex experience freedom all over again because we hear the gospel message. And so we just, it, all I need to do to, today is for someone to tell me the story again. Tell me the story again. And if I hear the story of Jesus dying on the cross again, then the rest of my day, I'm going to live in freedom. Well, it would be nice if it was that way. But oftentimes what can happen is that as we hear the message, sometimes it's, it becomes rote for us. Doesn't that happen? I mean, honestly, that's, it's a human struggle. That if you hear the story enough, it's, it's, it's easy for that to sometimes become, yes, I've been hearing this since Sunday school. My life is still difficult today. And I know that Jesus carries my burdens, but we don't necessarily feel all of the relief of that. And, and part of the reason I believe that is, is because we have a difficulty of experiencing the depth of the pain of Jesus. And this, again, is the idea around Lent. The idea of Lent is to not rush to resurrection because if you rush, rush to resurrection and we haven't experienced the full depth of it, then we're not, when we, when we get excited about him rising from the dead or when we get excited about the forgiveness of our sin, to the, to the depth that we have felt the pain is the depth that we can feel the relief. Does that make sense? So if you've been in a situation, have you ever been in a situation where you thought, where you were really scared that something bad was going to happen? And then you found out it wasn't going to happen. And the level of relief that you feel is absolutely spectacular, you know. But if you didn't ever experience how bad things could have been, but we, were, but we were protected from something, then it's hard to feel grateful about it. Do you understand what I mean? Uh, so uh, it may be that there was a terrorist attack that was planned for Pottstown, Pennsylvania, where there was going to be anthrax spread all through the water and, you know, we were all going to be in, in bad shape. There was just going to be a, a biological attack, but we never heard anything about it. And then someone from the government says, hey, by the way, there was a terrorist attack against you guys, but it's all good. We got it. Hmm. You know? And, but to the extent that we understand the depth of what would have happened defines how appreciative we are for being saved. And if we didn't understand what it was that we were saved from, then we can't fully appreciate that salvation. And, and if we don't fully appreciate it, we can oftentimes become like a spoiled child, right? Who parents worked and toiled, you know, down, worked their fingers to the bone in order to put their child through school. And yet the child doesn't know what all it took and goes off to school and just has a good time and kind of goofs off and doesn't really you know, apply themselves or learn or glean because they don't fully appreciate what it took. That's a spoiled child. And sometimes the gospel has a tendency to not solicit the level of appreciation and response that it should from us. And I believe that one of the big reasons is because we don't experience the depth of pain that Christ went through. One of the things I always appreciated um, at this time of year as a child was when Pastor Bob would teach, he would express the the physical pain uh, that, that Christ went through in describing what crucifixion was like. 
And I remember going over to uh, somewhere in Spring City, a church in Spring City, or they'd have like marathon Good Friday services. You remember that, Pastor Bob? We, it was like sermon after sermon all day long. And I remember sitting there and hearing, and, and I, sometimes we'd go through the words of Christ, the phrases of Christ throughout the day, and we'd spend all day on Good Friday. We experienced the pain of Jesus by having to sit through sermons all day long. Um, and, uh, and we would experience this, this thing. It was like all day was dedicated to experiencing the reality of what Christ went through. I don't know it was all day. It felt like all day to me. It was probably like three hours, four hours, something like that. But as a, I mean, you can imagine, as, if I, as a kid, that felt like a really, really long time. That's a lot of preaching. And, yeah, so, hey, if I go 40 minutes today, cut me some slack. It's not three hours long. Um, but anyway, the, uh, the, we would sit there, and, and as we would experience these phrases and have them wash over us, we're hearing the dread of what Jesus goes through. And that gets deeper and deeper inside of us. I took some time for personal retreat like uh, about a week ago, and it took me a while to get to a place where I could really experience the pain of Christ. And I was reading books, and I was, and, and I was praying, and I was reading the scriptures and all that, trying to, uh, to feel again the depth of what Christ went through. Not because I'm trying to be masochistic, not because I'm trying to feel pain, not because I think that somehow I'm more worthy of this thing if I feel the pain, not because I have to pay back by my gratefulness or something like that, but because I can't experience the full freedom of what deep inside of me I can release until I feel the pain of it deep down in there. And once I come to terms with what's deep down in there, then I can begin to release it. And one of the things that happened on this retreat is that I watched The Passion of the Christ again. And I don't know if you've seen that. I mean, the, the first time I saw it was that the screening, of the, they had a pastor screening for The Passion of the Christ. And I, I watched that movie in the theater. And, I, you know, I, I, it messed me up, you know. I mean, if you've seen that film, it, it really messed me up watching The Pain of Christ. And I was like, I don't think I'm ever going to watch this again. And this was the first time that I did, uh, that I watched it again years later. But as I watched it, watching that pain, allowed me to identify with the weight of my sin and, and what it is that my sin actually costs. You know, um, Walter Wangren, who's a, a, a phenomenal, phenomenal author, if you ever get a chance to read anything by Walter Wangren, particularly things around Lent and around, uh, uh, around the crucifixion and resurrection, please do, um, and uh, he wrote something uh, called Reliving the Passion. And one of the things that he talked about in there is uh, when we hurt someone, when we offend someone, say we do something to our kid that just really disappoints our child, that breaks their heart, you know? Promised my child that I would go do this, and then I got caught up in work and didn't fulfill, and just broke their heart. Or maybe I hurt my spouse. I lied to them, I was unfaithful to them, I did something horrible to my spouse or something, you know. Perhaps it goes the other way. When a child has, feels that they've really disappointed their parents and, and have let their parents down. Or maybe a friend, we've betrayed a friend somehow. And in that moment, when we watch the child or the parent or the spouse or the friend, when we watch in their eyes how they respond, what does it do to us? What happens to us when we see their response? It crushes us. It crushes us. And we have a tendency to do this. We have a tendency to want to hold that at bay. 
And we have a tendency to want to defend ourselves and to get them to stop expressing that emotion. Stop emoting. It hurts too bad when you emote. Why? Because when they are going through that pain, it is for us a mirror. It holds up a mirror to us that reveals our sin. It reveals what we've done to them. And we don't want to stare deep into that mirror. We don't want to look at that because that says something about us that we don't want to. That's that we got up really early in the morning and we walked over to the mirror in the bathroom and we don't like what we see and we'd rather just turn away from the mirror because it's not pretty. You know, because here we are in this relationship and how they're responding to the pain that I've caused solicits a great deal of pain in me. And rather than facing that mirror, what I'd rather do is defend myself and to try to get them to stop and say, stop, stop, just come on, let it go. You know, and I just want to brush past it. But here's the problem is that unless I realize the depth of what it is that I've done and begin to agree with them and begin to confess that and begin to say, yes, I did do that, then there is no freedom for me. I will carry that pain for the rest of my life. And I may eventually not feel it so acutely, but it will shape who I am. Because I will try to hide from that pain. And I will shape my life to hide from that pain. And I will live in a false reality. But what happens when that person is hurting and we allow ourselves to feel the pain? And we begin to realize, I have deeply wounded this person. And then we eventually say, I am really truly sorry. And I can't make it right. I can only say that I'm sorry. Well, then we have the ability to release it and potentially that person can even forgive me and we can begin to move forward. When we stare at this phrase, when we hear Christ in the midst of darkness, utter darkness, cry out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? This is the moment. See, this is the mirror for us. It's right here that we realize that this is not just Christ's pain. This is not just him. That the sin of us all is being placed on Jesus in this moment. That when he cries, he's not just crying his own pain. He is shedding the tears of our offense. I'm looking at him and when he cries out this pain, this is me looking into the eyes of him who I wounded. This is me watching. He is the mirror and I am staring into the depth of my own horrors. And he is experiencing the fullness of what I have done, not what he has done. And if I too quickly breeze past this phrase, then I will not be able to fully appreciate the resurrection. If I blow past this phrase and I don't experience the depth of the horror of the rejection, then, then I'm blowing past it. And I'm missing the full forgiveness that Jesus brings. So, there's this other question. And the other question is, when Jesus is experiencing this, is the Father truly turning his back on him? You know, and, and that's the one that theologians debate um, because and and for those of us who are more kind of on the cerebral side of things and have those theological questions that kind of nag us and plague us about the nature of God these aren't unimportant questions they're not because the question is would the father actually turn his back on the son you know and what does that say about God and those who, who, who are on the cerebral realm really need to ask those questions because that says something about who God is 
And, and, and we have to talk about that. And so just very briefly, we'll say this. The Trinity is something, obviously, that's far too complicated for us to comprehend. We live in a dimensional world that doesn't have all the dimensions that God does, right? And so we can't fully comprehend how the Trinity works unless we get to the place where we put on our 3D glasses or whatever they are when we get to heaven and we fully understand the, the, the 750-degree glasses, you know, that understand all the different angles on this thing. We can't understand the fullness of the Trinity. But know this. Jesus was both fully man and he was fully God. And somewhere in this fully man Jesus, he is hanging on a cross, both the Son of God and the Son of Man hanging on the cross. And somewhere in here, the Son of Man is fully experiencing every ounce of emotion and every ounce of rejection and every ounce of despair that any human could ever possibly imagine. The horror of what he's feeling, we cannot comprehend. The Son of Man is experiencing all of the horrors of humanity. The Son of God is the, is the Trinity broken up. The scriptures don't actually ever reveal that the Trinity is separated in this moment. And the only kind of wanderings around that that I can get in my head that kind of help me with this is, you know how some people who might, you might say to someone, I won't be there in body, but I'll be there in Spirit, okay? And so we say that I really want to be there and I kind of am going to be praying with you and I'm going to be thinking about you and a part of me goes with you, but I'm not really there. And in the same way, some people say if they're, if they're having a really bad relationship, but they live in the same house, what might they say? That we're, like we're strangers living in the same house or something like that, right? And so we're physically present with each other, but we're not emotionally, spiritually actually connected. Or on the other hand, we're physically apart from each other, but we're emotionally and spiritually really connected. And sometimes we can be very much closer to someone who's far away than the person who's physically close, right? And, so, and, and there's son of God, son of man stuff, and there's physical and spiritual. And somewhere in the middle of all of that, what happens is, is that Jesus is fully experiencing the weight of sin, which is utter and total rejection. And yet the Trinity's never actually broken. Okay, I don't, I don't believe the Trinity is actually broken. I believe that there is the deepest level of despair, of the disapproval of the Father against the sin which is placed on the Son, who's the Son of Man hanging on a cross. And yet the Godhead, God is one and always will be one. And uh, so that doesn't answer that question, but it alludes to it. And, uh, and, but with that said, I, I just want to move to the last part and say, what is it that we're supposed to take away from all of this? What is it that this thing speaks to us as we, as we uh, stand at the foot of the cross and as we hear the phrase cried out from darkness, the prayer, how should this affect us? Excuse me. <clears throat> You've felt rejection in your life before. We've all felt rejection in our life before. Um, perhaps it was for a parent to whom we weren't good enough. Perhaps it was to a, a friend or a spouse who, you know, uh, we weren't what they needed or what they wanted. You know, uh, perhaps it was a place where we wounded someone so deeply and we had really hoped that they would be able to get past it. 
but they couldn't or they wouldn't or whatever. But we feel the pain and we felt the weight. Underneath of all of that is a deeper rejection, a deeper hurt, a deeper abandonment. And that's that in each one of us, in every single one of us, somewhere inside of us, we know something. We know that we have not upheld our end of the bargain with God. We know that he should be deeply disappointed in us, that we haven't carried our weight, that we haven't loved him anywhere near as much as he has loved us. And we know it. We can, we can do self-talk that tries to help us feel better about that. We can do all sorts of things that try to run away from that. But the fact is, is that we know somewhere deep inside of us, whether we're cognizant of it or not, we know that we have failed God. And it's like those two, the, the two uh, criminals on the cross next to Jesus. They both knew that they had failed God. But one of them was coming to terms with that and receiving forgiveness. The other was still trying to act like they were fine, you know? And, and still trying to be tough. And here is where we get at it. Is that at the, in the pit of us, there is self-condemnation. And the rejection that we've experienced from parent, spouse, friend, whatever, that stuff that's hurt us, the reason that's hurt us is because it confirms something that's deeper in us, which is the rejection of ourselves. The condemnation of ourselves. And of course, it's one of the greatest tools of the enemy, the accuser of the saints who comes and just takes that thing and twists inside of us, says, you fail God. You fail God all the time. Look at you. You're pathetic. You know? And that's what he says all the time. And he just says that to make us feel horrible. And down in the middle of that, because of that, we have a very, very difficult time walking in the grace of Jesus. We have a hard time experiencing the love of God because there's still this level of condemnation. And And so here in this moment, what we're supposed to hear from the cross as Jesus cries out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Is we are supposed to actually hear that this stuff that we feel deep inside of us, Jesus felt more than we have felt. And if I'm feeling it now, if I'm feeling that rejection, if I'm feeling that sense of despair, if I'm feeling that sense of disappointment, what I'm actually saying is Jesus You didn't feel it enough. I have to still feel it. You didn't feel it enough yet, Jesus. I need to still feel it. Because the truth is, is that Romans 8 says, there is now therefore no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Why? Because Christ Jesus has already felt the condemnation for us. And in those deep pockets of my soul where I still feel the condemnation, we need to hear the cry of Jesus that came out in Psalm 22, that came out from the cross and is coming out to us today that's saying, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And we need to realize that that's no longer my cry. That that cry that's in my heart has already been cried 2,000 years ago from a Roman cross and it's time for me to let it go. It's time for me to let it go. And for me to say, I cannot improve this thing. He has already improved it. 
He has washed me. He has set me free. And all the pain and all the rejection and all the sorrow and all the suffering and all of that, I'm holding on to all of it. But it's just time to say, man, Jesus is still crying. And when I feel that pain and when I feel that rejection, I need to hear Christ screaming it. And I need to know that this is not something that that I just ignore and I push down there. It's like, yes, let it be screamed. But don't let it be screamed through the way I live my life. Let it be screamed through Christ on a cross. And this is why we dig deep into the moment of the cross. This is why we listen intently. Because the more we hear the pain of Jesus, the more we realize that this forgiveness is to cleanse the deepest parts, the pit of our soul. And you know, the beauty of that is that For many of us, the way that that sense of rejection has manifested itself is that when we try to take steps of faith to follow God, sometimes we're afraid that he might not completely be there for us. And it's not necessarily because we don't believe in a God who's able to do the amazing. It's because we don't believe in a relationship that we have with God that can empower that. You know? So here I am. I see Moses against the Red Sea. What's God do? He delivers them. I see Gideon staring down a a, a sea of endless, vicious Midianites. And what's God going to do? He's going to deliver them. And, you you know, David staring down this huge giant. What's God going to do? He's going to topple them. And Daniel with the breath of a lion in his face. And what's God going to do? Shut the lion's mouth. And Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego facing an incinerator. And they still stand because they know God's going to deliver us. And we look at these stories and it goes all the way through the New Testament and the martyrs. And we see Peter and Paul and Silas. And we just, the stories over and over again of people who believed God would deliver them. And because of that, they could live lives of radical faith. And we still believe that God is capable of all of those things. And we still believe that God, it's no problem for him. So why do we doubt? We don't doubt because we doubt that God's capable. We doubt that we have the kind of relationship with him that they have. And we believe that our relationship with God is still somehow based on our faithfulness. (laughs) We forget that if today I say, hey, I'm going to follow Jesus and I'm going to do something he asked me to do. We forget that when the prodigal son turned around and came back, that the moment the father saw him, he ran out and threw a robe on him, put a ring on his finger and started throwing a party for him and would have done anything for him in the same way, no matter how desperate of sinners we are, no matter how rejected we've been, no matter how much of sinners we have been, no matter how much we have failed God, that in this moment, if we will take God at his word and if we will step out and trust him, he will never, ever fail us and he will not abandon us to the grave. Because one time Jesus cried out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And it's a phrase that we should never, ever say again. Never say again. Because we are not desperate orphans who have been abandoned by our God. This should be our cry. My God, my God, why have you accepted me? Why have you loved me? Why have you adopted me? Why have you forgiven me? Why have you validated me? I don't know. But today, he's here in all of his fullness. And he offers every ounce of his being to us. Let's not get stuck 
at trying to recreate the phrase that Christ can cry and we can't anymore. Let's not take that away from him. He did it. We can't. He's good. And now we are too, only because of his grace. Yeah, let's pray.